0: I was a scrappy looking teenager. I never did my homework or normal teenage things, or even cried about my mom. Within the first few weeks of her death, I developed insomnia, often kept awake by the task of balancing the food shopping budget in my head. After a year passed, I felt trapped in this altered state, a teen acting out an adult role, but I was still a child. When I first got my period, I panicked, not knowing what it was, silently convinced I was dying. I left home at 17, moving in with my boyfriend. I went to college in the day and worked in a bakery and bar to make rent. It was at the bakery that I met Paula. My unlikely friend Paula was older than me. She was a successful comedy writer and actress, who, after falling through a succession of devastating events, had become exhausted. She left London for the sleepy seaside town of Hastings to take a break from it all. I discovered her when we both found ourselves selling baked goods. She told jokes that made me snap in half with laughter, eyes tearing and belly hurting. Later, once I got to know her more, it took less. A single look from Paula could make me fall on the floor, bubbling with hysterics, still clutching a customer's loaf of bread. Most customers didn't mind me crying happily as I passed them their change. Some customers found it endearing or contagious. Our jokes weren't private, we shared our humour. But someone complained and Paula and I were split up. Management meticulously planned our shifts to make sure that Paula and I missed each other entirely. It was amazing how quickly a part-time bakery job could switch from light work to dismal torture, but that's what happened. Shifts became endless without the release of laughter. Paula and I had worked our separate days knowing well that management was watching us via the security cameras in the comfort of the office. We were both one laugh away from losing our shitty jobs. Without Paula to keep me company I made new friends. One even became a slight obsession. Her name was Linda. Linda was in her late 50s but she acted prepubescent, a corpse like Lolita. She was real thin and frail with huge white hair that she wore in childlike braids, her mascara was applied so thickly that her eyes appeared as two long-legged long-legged tarantulas. Linda laughed a lot. Her response to any question was to break into a quiet girlish giggle. The reason Linda was allowed to laugh was not favoritism; it was because her head was host to a cocktail of mental illnesses so sprawling and complex, that management seemed to fear her. But I didn't fear her. I was fascinated. I became an anthropologist, studying Linda's every move. Sometimes she would stand in the middle of the bakery for what felt like hours, dumbly holding a price gun and staring ahead with glassy eyes. Other times I'd try to interview Linda, asking her about everything, from her private relationships to her favourite meals. Whatever the question, her answer was always the same a blush and a giggle, sometimes coyly covering her mouth other times flapping her heavy black eyelashes and grinning, madly and mute. She looked like Bette Davis and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, but skinny. Baby Jane on heroin, maybe. Linda was painfully skinny. She never ate and seemed oblivious to the food surrounding her, even as I stuffed my face with ice buns, pastries, pies, all while talking to her. I started sketching Linda and she soon became the primary subject of all my work at art college. At lunch, Linda would gallop to the pub and drink as much hard alcohol as she could in one hour. Eventually, someone from the management told her that when she returned from lunch, leaking of liquor was a problem. The following day, after her usual liquid lunch, Linda chewed up whole cloves of garlic to mask the smell. Her laughter smelled of garlic. I documented this in a comic strip. My other friend at the bakery was named Reet, Reet worked at the back of the bakery making the cakes. She was terribly old and ever so wise. She would let me stick my grimy hands into the bowls of cake mix and lick my fingers as she told me stories. I had other friends too. A small group of beautiful girls my own age that bounced around adding youth to the funny old establishment. They all worked part time with other real jobs. One was a bass player, another an artist. The strange coincidence was that each of our mums had died of cancer when we were children and we would all stand together and cry on Mother's Day, hugging each other between begrudgingly selling cakes that read Mum in pink icing letters to health-looking girls linked by arms to their beaming mums. While I busied myself with my study of Linda, the musings of Reet and the half-orphans, I failed to realise that Paula had had enough of the job, having had the humour sucked out of her, She found it impossible to return to the bakery and quit when I found out I didn't last much longer. The following year, I quit all my shitty jobs, I dumped my boyfriend and moved to London. I'd graduated from college and won an award for the children's book i had written and illustrated about Linda. The story showed Linda living in a crooked castle with flags and turrets, surrounded by pets and looking for love. I stayed true to her character and mannerisms, which may have seemed odd in real life, but translated as perfectly friendly or endearing as a children's book character. I painted her wide eyes and long smile, her strange gait and her fluffy hair. She was nothing short of lovable. Within no time I was thriving in London. I was a brand manager of a fashion label, I had a haircut and a chihuahua, a rich lover and some kind of eating disorder that made me thinner than Linda. In the eyes of everyone I looked up to, this is regarded as the one and only year of my life that I was a success, but I know the truth, that London was lonely, that the dog was more like a rat, and so in fact was the lover. In the children's book, Linda surrounded herself with pet rats, and in reality I had done the same. I'd surrounded myself with rats, but unlike Linda's these weren't my friends. The synchronicity between my situation and Linda's, both the real Linda and my fictional Linda, did not stop there, there were many. I became more like her in both appearance and character in a freakishly short spout of time. In London I had allowed myself to become desperately depressed, dark and paranoid. I had lost who I was and become quite ill. I decided, like Paula before me, to leave the big city and return to Hastings for a rest. So Paula took me in, taking me on at the peak of my insanity. She let me live rent free until I got back on my feet until my brain was back on my side whichever came first i'd been ordered by my doctor to take a large pill every day which was supposed to rid me of everything from my newly diagnosed bipolar to my older but just as impressive grand mal epilepsy the main side effect of the gigantic dosage was a level of sedation that left me seeming childlike and dopey i was becoming linda i wanted to go to linda for advice to hear her high-pitched laughter but sadly, Linda had died the year before, having drunkenly fallen down the stairs. She had been taken to the hospital for a broken arm, but once in, in a bed, her body just deteriorated. Maybe it gave up without its liquid lunch, I don't know. I wish I'd told her she was my muse. I couldn't even consult the fictional Linda because in a blank moment, I had chucked the, all the books out, all copies, my notes, illustrations, paintings and comics. My whole Linda's study was gone. So now I was living with Paula. She put a giant dictionary on the coffee table and told me I would find most of my answers in there. Plus, it would only help with my spelling. Paula called our home the Black Flat because we were bound together by some very dark feelings. I, with my existential crises and depression, she with her growing anxieties and anthropophobia. I called it the showroom because it was a sublet that was so devoid of personality that it felt as though we were camping out at Ikea. The best part of the place was the balcony, which overlooked the crashing ocean and made me feel like King Triton. Together in the black flat, Paula and I managed to laugh our way through days and weeks, but my head still felt funny and my heart ached as if it had a hole in it and I was still feeling very lost. I looked for answers everywhere. I tried to meditate and failed. I flung myself into the sea. I thought about getting a cat. My flatmate from London invited me to a small town in Spain to stay with her family for the weekend and seeing as the flight on EasyJet cost the same as a sandwich I decided I would. I put my bikini and my passport in my handbag and was there the next day. We stayed in a house surrounded by rolling hills and stretches of desert not too far from the beach. One day I decided to walk back to the house from the beach instead of taking the car as before. Locals told me to climb the hill and walk straight for 15 minutes and I would find the house. It sounded simple enough. I climbed the hill wearing my silver lame swimsuit and black sandals, holding my flip phone in one hand and tracked for a while. I walked and daydreamed and soon it became clear that I had been walking for over 15 minutes. I looked at the time on my flip phone, which had no reception and served only as a clunky watch. I had been walking forty minutes at a fast pace. I squinted ahead but could see nothing but the same desert land, with the odd spiky and dry shrub. I turned slowly squinting in every direction but found the same at every angle, dry and barren land stretching on endlessly. Panicking I simultaneously realised that I was lost in the desert and that I had never felt more thirsty. The sun became my tormentor, beating down its scorching rays. I decided to turn back and began running in the direction I'd come from. But an hour passed and I found nothing. I zigzagged through the desert with a pounding heart, one broken sandal. I decided to choose one direction and just keep going until I found something. My stupid flip phone counted the hours as they passed, trickling numbers, dumbly counting towards my certain death. Four hours passed before I reached something. It was a cliff. And although I couldn't see below, I could hear cars and I knew I was saved. I left my phone and the broken sandal and began climbing down, cutting my limbs as I slipped, then caught myself, remaining glued to the cliff edge in one place for minutes at a time, petrified with fear. My arms and legs were covered in blood and dirt as I held out my hand to hitchhike a ride back to the house or anywhere with water and people. I wore only the silver lame swimsuit and one dumb black sandal. I'd faced death, but returned to Hastings the next day, having learnt nothing. The desert bore no sign or apparitions, no word from a god or goddess, no wisdom of any kind. I'd found my way out of the desert, but I had not found myself. Back in Hastings, Paula and I held a funeral for all the sadness in our past. We made a bonfire on the beach and burned letters, diaries and photos in hopes of erasing our mistakes and starting anew. I wore a black dress and cape. Paula cried and I danced around the bonfire. It was working. I also used the funeral to say goodbye to Linda. I'd always felt sad that I hadn't attended her funeral. I wonder who went, I asked Paula. Probably her ex-husband, Paula replied. Ex-husband? It had never occurred to me that Linda had been anyone other than the person I had briefly seen and known. I was surprised to find out that she had had an ex-husband, that she had had other lives. There had probably been many incarnations of Linda. Unfortunately, I was only able to see the last. I had overstayed my welcome staying on the mattress in the black flat, and I knew that it was time to move on. I was fuelled by the kind of freedom... It comes to someone only when they have nothing to lose. No home, no money, no job, no love, but plenty of fearless optimism. I packed a bag with some floral dresses and used the last of my money to scrape together a fare for a flight to New York. A local boy helped me pack my BMX into a travel bike box. I thanked Paula, told her I would write and left for good. Sitting on the aeroplane flying towards nothing but question marks, I knew in my heart that I was doing exactly the right thing.